Hello, and welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in our national office, and I'll be your host today. In today's episode, we're focusing on an older standard, FAS 52, now known as ASC 830, Accounting for Foreign Currency. Although this standard is over 35 years old, it still generates a lot of questions as we consider its application in today's business environment. With me in the studio today is John Horan, a managing director in PwC's national office who spends much of his time assisting clients with foreign currency issues. John is a great educator, and I'm looking forward to a lively discussion. So, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Before we dive into the actual accounting for foreign currency, I just have a big picture question. So, FAS 52, now ASC 830, it's been around since the 80s, early 80s, in fact. Any, you know, every other standard, it feels like, is changing, maybe leases sort of like last to fall. What's going on with foreign currency? Yeah, it's a bit of a dinosaur. That's that's for sure. You know, it was released in in uh, November 1983, I think. And there there hasn't been a lot of appetite, you know, by the FASB and quite frankly by users to, you know, do a lot of changing to the standard. And I think a lot of that has to do with an attitude of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really where it's coming from. There's been a few standards that have, you know, caused us to have to modify pieces of ASC 830, where they had to make some modifications. But generally, you know, there's been a reluctance to to really dig in and change it wholeheartedly, and and that's really because I think there's a thought that it's not really needed. Interesting, even though the standard itself has not changed, the transactions have changed, and the companies have changed. So again, before we kind of jump into what people should be focused on, can you give us a little um, color on that? Yeah, absolutely. The the standard, as I said, it's a dinosaur. It it was written from the perspective of a U.S. parent looking out at all of their foreign operations. And obviously, uh, organization structures have changed a lot since then. Um, they're much more complex. That has a lot to do with companies doing more complex tax planning, taking advantage advantages of tax treaties between countries. So the organization structures are much different than I think was envisioned when. It's like sort of like Fast looking down, yeah, that's, from that's the exactly U.S. looking, right. and now it's every direction. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I guess the other thing, another thing, and we'll get into this a little bit as we go through, but uh, the other thing that's changed is in 1983, it wasn't as easy to finance in Mm. as many different currencies as it is today. You know, today you can almost finance in any currency you want and then swap it back to any currency you want. So there's been a lot of changes since since, um, the standard was written, but the basic models still work. Right. Okay, well, good. Well, I think those kind of business changes are a good reason for us to remind people some of the key things about foreign currency. So why don't we jump into our first topic then, which is just identification of foreign entities. And I guess on the surface, this seems very easy. You have a foreign entity or you don't, but I know it's not quite that straightforward. Yeah, it's not that it's so difficult, but it does take some thought and it takes time to do the analysis. But it is the most fundamental concept, I think, in the standard. And, you know, foreign entity is a term that's defined in the standard. And I think a lot of people that don't have a lot of exposure to it don't realize it. When they look at the term foreign entity in the standard, they think of just a subsidiary that's overseas. 
foreign entity is actually a defined term. And I'll just, you know, read the definition just to sort of level set. It, the definition is an operation. It says, for example, a subsidiary, division, branch, joint venture, and so forth. That's the actual and so words. forth, I like it's the that. actual words yes. of the standard. <laughs> Whose financial statements are both prepared in a currency other than the reporting currency of the reporting entity and are combined or consolidated with or accounted for on the equity basis in the financial statements of the reporting entity. So it's not really a real helpful definition. Although I like the and so forth. (laughs) (laughs) Over time, practice has evolved, and we know a foreign entity now when we see it. But it, it does take some time to sit back and take a look at it. I think when you're thinking about your foreign entities, and I, and I, I do think it's important that companies sit back, look at their organization structure. And what we generally say is what you would do is look at your legal organization structure. Start at the bottom and start looking at each legal entity in the structure and begin thinking about whether that legal entity represents a separate and distinct operation. That's the term we use instead of foreign Foreign entity, entity. but it means the same thing in our terms. And when we think about a separate and distinct operation, I think the things you need to think about are the way that the entity is managed. What are the what are the actual business and activities of the entity? You know, does the entity have employees? Those types of things. And we generally would look and say, does this, you know, entity or subsidiary or joint venture, does it have all of the things that you would expect a business to have? And I'm not really thinking about a business in the business combination Yes, I was going to ask you if you were (laughs) using the same definition. A foreign entity actually doesn't have to rise to the level of a business. As defined. uh, As defined in the business combination literature. But it's close. Right. So, so typically, you think about a, a subsidiary in the UK, for example, and it's got manufacturing, it's got sales, it's got marketing, it's got research and development, it's got management that's compensated, you know, for the operations of that business. You know, we're likely going to look at that um, subsidiary and say that's a separate and distinct operation. On the other hand, you know, there are certain legal entities. I think the most basic is a sales office, for example. If all of the operations of a company are in the U.S., for example, and all we have is legal entities in various countries that are selling the goods that are, or services that are produced or provided by the U.S. parent, many times what you'll find is the parent is really just funding those sales offices on a monthly basis. So every month, you know, there's three salespeople, a couple of computers, some office rent, and the parent is really just funding that on a monthly basis. A lot of times we would look at that sales office and say, that's not a separate and distinct operation. So it's not a foreign entity. Because it's an extension of your U.S. business in that case. That's right. So then do you get into situations where you could be combining legal entities and saying, oh, well, if I put these three legal entities together, that could be one separate and distinct operation? Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, when you look at, we always say start by looking at each individual legal entity. And many times each legal entity will be a foreign entity, but it's not always the case. As you've said, you can have a situation where three legal entities together form a single foreign entity. An example of that might be, let's say that um, you have a fast food restaurant chain in the UK, and they have three legal entities, and each legal entity has one of the restaurants in the legal entity. They're all managed together. Mm. Um, Strategy is together. There's probably combined 
accounting and, and financial reporting, we'd likely look at that. And again, every situation is different, but we'd likely look at that and say that's probably one foreign entity. So your legal entity chart is a starting point, but then the, the actual lines where you're drawing the foreign entities obviously can differ. That's right. It's also possible, although unusual, that you can have a single legal entity with multiple foreign entities. Oh, I was going to ask you that. The standard actually does specifically say that. I would say I've seen it. It, It's unusual, but it can happen. Okay, good. So that's very helpful. So then now we've identified foreign entities, and we've obviously spent a lot of time talking about it, but why is that so critically important? Foreign entity is the basis for everything. I, I guess the first thing is the next most basic concept is functional currency. In order to, I I always like to say, earn the right to have your own functional currency, you need to be a foreign entity. Oh, so those sales offices would not have their own functional currency? It's it's likely they would not. Um, It's, you know, they would likely take the functional currency of the parent or another entity in the organization structure that they're providing the services for. And so... That's the primary reason, and we'll talk a little bit later. You know, the other reason is when you liquidate a foreign entity, you would release CTA, and there's very important to understand what your foreign entities are because you would not release CTA until you knew that that you had liquidated that foreign entity. And so for our listeners who may not be up the curve on foreign currency CTA, what does it stand for? (laughs) (laughs) That stands for Cumulative Translation Adjustment. Um, we'll talk a little bit about how that gets created. Perfect. Later, so. Okay, so then let's move on to our next topic, which is we talked about functional currency. That's the next basic building block. So how do you determine your functional currency? Once you've identified your foreign entities, you would, you would look at each foreign entity. And the definition of functional currency is the currency of the primary economic environment that the entity operates in. So although standard says that, you know, there's a a list of indicators in the standard, um, standard says that you would not weight any one indicator more important than the others. I think because of the definition, again, the economic environment that you operate in, I think practice is such that most companies look to the indicators that deal with their actual operations and probably weight those a little bit heavier when they evaluate their functional currency. And so what I always say is, you know, it's important to sit down, look at, if you, if you think about the operating section of your income statement and think about the cash flows that would go into the operating section of that income statement and look at the predominance of those cash flows and whatever that currency is, that's likely the currency that you should determine is your functional currency. And then if you don't have any cash flows going into the operating section, that might be an indicator you don't have a foreign entity, I guess. Yeah, if all your transactions, for example, are intercompany transactions, uh, if all, or if all they are is intercompany loans that are being paid back and forth, it's probably a pretty good indicator that that's not a separate and distinct operation, and you need to look to one of your other entities to determine what the functional currency is. And then your point on looking at the operating section, again, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned, you know, it's very easy to go finance in any currency right now, so, or relatively easy. So, you know, if, even if I'm, let's say, operating in the UK, I could fund using the euro, and that might not be a good indicator. That, that's right. I, I think 
as I said, most companies, I think, predominantly look to the sales price indicators, the sales market indicators. You know, what currencies are they buying? Are they buying their raw materials in? Those are really what's driving the economics of the business most of the time. Uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, financing can be done in any currency. So if we if we rely too much on a financing indicator, for example, it would be you know, it might be easy to manipulate what the functional currency of the entity was. So they're clearly indicators, and sometimes they're, you know, a lot of times they're tiebreakers. <laughs> you know? right. and, and so it's important to look at that and understand what, the cur- what currency you're financing in. But largely we look to more to the, I would say, the operating indicators. Yeah, and one question I had for you on this is, how judgmental would you say this is? Like, if you kind of line up all the indicators, is usually pretty clear, or does it typically come down to a question of judgment? I would say often it's not that difficult to determine because, you know, I'll give you an example. In the oil business, many of the exploration and production companies, they are, all of their revenues are in U.S. dollars because oil is primarily sold around the world in U.S. dollars. So if you think about that and say, okay, 100% of my revenues are in U.S. dollars, even if all the rest of my expenses are in, you know, whatever, what, whatever the currency yeah. is, hopefully my goal is to make money so my sales are larger than, than, than my, um, you know, my expenses, you're likely a U.S. dollar functional entity. Um, so many of those companies are, and I would say often that's the situation that when you're looking at a subsidiary, primarily your sales revenues are driven by either euro or dollar or some significant, you know, some significant currency in the area of the world that you're in. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes, sometimes it's close. And that, in those cases, it does require a lot of judgment. And those are cases where you probably look a little bit harder at your financing indicators. and Look at all the different yeah, pieces. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay, so then we've figured out if we're a foreign entity and we've figured out the functional currency. So let's move to our third topic then, which is just the accounting. CTA, transaction gains and losses. You want to take us through some of that? Yeah, I, I think the next thing, if you if you think about the way that the consolidation of an entity happens, the first thing that a company does when they consolidate their financial statements at the end of a reporting period is all of their monetary assets and liabilities in each foreign entity that they have need to be measured in the functional currency of that foreign entity. And so today, as we said, you know, the world's changed a lot. Most entities have transactions. You know, they're making sales in currencies other than their functional currency. They're buying goods and services in other than their functional currency. So they have receivables and payables um, in other than their functional currency. All of those need to be measured in their functional currency. And that's the first step in the consolidation process. When they do that, the change in the value in their functional currency, that's a profit and loss item. And that's what we see on the, in, in our income statement as foreign currency transaction gains or losses. Once they've done that, then they need to translate the financial statements of each of their foreign entities into the reporting currency. The change in the value in the reporting currency goes through what we talked about before, the CTA account or the cumulative translation adjustment account. And that's a component of other comprehensive income inequity. And it'll stay there until that foreign entity is liquidated. The reason that the process is the way that, is, that it is is because the standard basically assumes that a company, 
you know, again, from the perspective of ASC 830, it's a U.S. parent, will convert all of its assets and liabilities into its functional currency and then distribute those assets and liabilities in the functional currency to the parent. And that's the reason that the process is the way it is and, and why it works the way it does. So if you have operations that you don't have a foreign entity, but you, let's say, sold something in a different currency, then those translation adjustment gains or losses would just flow through the income statement. They don't go yeah. into your CTA. Yes. And you know that you bring up a good point because this it's unfortunate in the standard, it uses the term translation for both what I would call remeasurement, mm-hmm. which when I say remeasurements, what I'm talking about is measuring the monetary assets and liabilities of a company in the functional currency. When I speak about translation, I'm talking about translating the financial statements of that foreign entity into the parent's currency. Unfortunately, the standard uses the word translate for both. So when I speak to clients in our engagement teams, you know, and they start speaking about translation, I always stop and say, I want to make sure that we're talking about translation and not remeasurement. But so I, I think the nomenclature is important. It's one of the unfortunate things in ASC 830, actually. Yeah. One other question then for you, and this is maybe a place where change in business is intersecting with this old standard. I mean, I still remember as a staff trying to track down, you know, some um, foreign currency at the end of the period, and then coming up with some averages and things like that to in order to do my Remeasurement, <laughs> um, but now obviously all the information is readily available. I mean, so do people still use averages to um, to to do that, or are they? You know, do we have a sort of higher bar now for that? Well, I mean, technically, you know, a transaction in in other than the functional currency is supposed to be recorded at the rate on the transa- on the date the transaction right. occurs. And I would say a lot of the ERP systems available today allows companies to basically do that. But averages are allowed to be used as an approximation. And a lot of companies do do that. And I would say from a translation perspective, when they translate the financial statements, many times they are using averages for the income statement. Yeah. Um, unless, you know, unless you're making um, airplanes or something where you're, you know, you only have one sale a quarter, it's probably a pretty good representative yeah. way to use. Or dealing with power plants. That's my background. <laughs> so, um, okay. So that's helpful and definitely, especially on that um, nomenclature. So then why don't we move to the next topic you mentioned, which was CTA release and um, the accounting for that. So how does liquidation work? Yeah, this is one of the things that I would say is it's, it's probably the, one of the areas that we get consulted with the most. And it's one of the reasons why it's really important to understand what your foreign entities are. Because a lot of times, you know, uh, we'll get a call um, from a client or an engagement team and they'll say, we're selling this entity or we're selling the assets of this entity. Should we be releasing CTA? And, you know, the first question is, well, is it a foreign entity? So basically what the standard says is thou shalt not release CTA unless you've either sold your investment in the foreign entity or substantially liquidated the net assets of the foreign entity. And so we're really talking about did we sell the stock of the foreign entity or did we uh, sell the assets in the foreign entity? And we see both. If you've sold the stock of the entity, as long as you've, let's say for for the moment that we're talking about 100% investment in a subsidiary that we've concluded is a foreign entity, and let's just say we sold... 70% of that entity, of the stock 
in that entity. Because we've now lost control, and we'll assume for the moment yes. that we don't have <laughs> other consolidation yes. issues, that, uh, that since we've lost control of that entity, that's a fair value event under ASC 810, yes. I think, I believe, right? And so CTA would get released as part of that transaction. In the old days, before ASC 810, you would actually only release CTA on a prorated basis. That changed. That was one of the things that we changed when ASC 810 came out. So that's kind of easy to see. We, right. you know, have we lost control? If we have. It's a fair value event. So then you would release the portion related to. You would release 100 percent of the CTA. You would release 100. Yeah, in the old okay. days it was a portion. Okay. Um, now it's 100 percent of the CTA. It, it's kind of like you, you sold the whole entity and took back, back an okay. equity method investment, right. which you would then begin to you know, start assuming over. You're, yeah, yeah, you would start over again. Okay. It's interesting, you know, if you sold pieces of your equity method investment that was a foreign entity, you would pr- release prorated, release the CTA on a prorated basis. So that's so, kind of stayed the way it used to be. So it sounds like a good area to look at the book if this, <laughs> if this happens or call John. <laughs> the, you know, an area where I think, I, I would say if you're selling the stock of the investment in an entity. The only place I think that it can get confusing is when that entity is a second-tier subsidiary. And so you need to sit back and look at it and say, you know, is the investment in that legal entity, is that a foreign entity in and of itself, or is it really just part of another foreign entity? So I would go back to our fast food example that we talked about earlier. Let's say we have a holding company and three, three subsidiaries that each has a fast food restaurant in, in those subsidiaries. If we sold one of those, the investment in one of those subsidiaries, we might say that, look, we didn't sell an investment in a foreign entity because that legal entity is part of a more broad foreign entity. So we wouldn't release the CTA. Oh, so um, any the gain or loss on that transaction then would just be part of that foreign entity's operations get... Yeah, it would be the the CTA that's getting created is all part of the foreign entity, which hasn't been liquidated, liquidated, right? So the other area where I guess we get lots of questions is, have we substantially liquidated this entity? And so let's just assume for a moment that we have the same situation. We have 100% investment in a subsidiary, and that subsidiary is a foreign entity. And we've decided we're not going to sell the sock of that entity. We're going to sell the assets. We sell all the assets we can. Everything that we can sell, we've sold. But there's still an office building left and, you know, a couple of assets laying around that nobody wanted so we couldn't sell. Have we substantially liquidated the entity? Typically, we would look at it and say, well, did we sell, you know, more than 90% of the fair value of net assets of that entity? If we have, and, it, you know, the 90% is not a bright line, okay. but a rule of thumb general rule of thumb. And so we would look at that. If we have sold more than 90% of the net assets, we would say likely we've substantially liquidated the entity and you would release the CTA. Lots of 100% about. of the CTA. Yeah. So then before we wrap things up today, why don't we talk about one last topic where I know we got a lot of questions, which is basically loans and whether or not they're really masquerading as capital or often I know loans, you know, people will say that they've designated a loan as a permanent advance and the implications of that accounting. Yeah, we get a lot of questions about this as well. There's, the standard allows that if you've got funding between entities that are consolidated, that 
you can designate that loan as being of a long-term investment nature. And if you did do that, then when you consolidate, typically, if you hadn't designated it as being of a long-term investment nature, the change in the value of that loan in the functional currency of the entity that has the currency exposure. So, for example, if a parent, um, a U.S. dollar parent, lent to a euro sub in dollars, the euro sub is exposed to the U.S. dollar because... It earns all its money in euros, and it needs to pay the parent back in dollars. Typically, when during consolidation, that would get remeasured back into the uh, European subs books. There'd be profit and loss generated. A foreign currency transaction gain or loss would be generated. And that would get translated and remain in the company's financial statements. Even though the loan itself uh, eliminates, the P&L would stay. Mm. So the standard does allow, if that investment, that that loan is of a long-term investment nature during consolidation to reclassify that transaction gain or loss into the cumulative translation adjustment account in equity. But there's some rules around it. You can't, you know, you can't just make a policy election that you're going to do that. Basically, the standard says, you know, the words are a little bit unfortunate in the standard, I think. The the standard says that if the loan is not going to be repaid in the foreseeable future, it can be designated as a permanent advance. And so one of the biggest questions we get is, what do they mean when they say the loan is not going to be repaid in the foreseeable future? Yeah, how long is that? And some people say that, uh, some people say that, well, I'm going to repay it. I just don't know when. So does that work? Well, no, it doesn't. If you're going to repay it, it's not eligible to be designated as a permanent advance. It really means we're never going to repay that loan. You know, essentially we're saying, although it's legally debt, it's capital. It, 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 it's MC. really capital. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's one of the biggest areas we, we hear from engagement teams and clients, one of the, one of the areas that's, that's misunderstood sometimes. I guess some of the practice issues that we see, although it's infrequent, it does happen that that designation changes for whatever reason. You know, a company 10 or 15 years ago designates a loan as being of a permanent, uh, a long-term investment nature. Things change over time. The loan gets repaid. Maybe there's you know sale of assets. You know, we, we, we typically say that we would look for something that could not possibly have been foreseen at the time the loan was designated as being the reason that, that you redesignate the loan. The one thing I guess that comes up is when did we know we were going to repay the loan? And that's a harder question than you think. Um, because uh, you know, people you know, people you think about you know, maybe we'll repay this loan. It's Sometimes, been here 50 yeah. years. But the act, when was the actual decision made and, and, and when was the conclusion made that, that the loan would be repaid? Oh, because your point is at that point is when you need to change the county, not when That's the payment right. actually occurs. The, the one thing I always tell clients, it's not the same day you repaid it. There's going to be some period of time between the time that you make that change in designation and the time it gets repaid, which means there will be a period of time where the, the, the change in that will go through P&L. You would not release the CTA, by the way, that you created, because we would say that that loan, being of a long-term investment nature, is part of the net investment in that entity. entity. And so that would not get released until... Or the foreign entity. Yes. All right, very good. Uh, John, thank you so much. It's a great refresher on um, foreign currency. Give people a lot to think about. I really appreciate having you on today. It was great to be here. Thank you. 
And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this foreign currency refresher and education on key issues from John. Please join me here again next week as we discuss consolidations. Matt Sabatini, a partner in our national office, will provide some key reminders. We're recording that episode as part of the release of our new guide, so it will be interesting to see what's new. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.